Abigail, and this is the Peak Curiosity Podcast. Today, I'm bringing you an episode I did with Kylie Peterson, an old friend from high school. She's currently working on earning a clinical psychology degree, and we talk a lot about therapy and the ins and outs of learning how to be a therapist. And for the end, we talked postmodernism and critical race theory, and we even disagreed and didn't even get in a fight, which is awesome. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. Every time I think I talk to you, I brag about you a lot because I think you're so cool, but oh. I am like, well, Kylie is essentially just me 2.0. Yeah. She was more athletic than me. She was Ooh. smarter than me. And then you'll have to tell me this. Uh-huh. I actually think that you essentially married the same guy that I did. Like, <laughs> I love that because yeah. I just saw a picture of him and I thought he looks like a Jordan and I showed Jordan and he was like yeah he looks like he would be me too yeah so yeah no like I could see them having the same vibe just yeah. from like what I know about Jordan yeah, yeah. kind of laid back yeah yeah really laid back and chill but most specifically like a really sweet kind of guy yeah yeah yeah, that's definitely Michael. Very thoughtful, I would say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we're essentially the same person. But <laughs> you're doing what I wish that I had done. Yeah, still can. So, yeah. So I'm going to ask a stupid question, though, mm-hmm. just for the sake of our listeners. What is a clinical psychology degree? Yeah, it's actually like a really good question and a loaded question. Um, there are a lot of different avenues in psychology, so... There's a clinical psychologist, which is someone who focuses more on clinical work, so more the therapy side, but it is still a doctorate, so it's five years, and you are qualified to do cognitive neuropsychological assessments, therapy, and you do do a research dissertation, so you do like the research component too. There's also a PhD in psych, which is even more research-focused and less clinical-focused, and there's a master's of psych, so a counselor and a master's level school psychologist. So they just do assessments. So a PsyD you can kind of think of as taking little pieces from all of those different areas. Interesting. But you kind of jumped around from major to major before you settled on this. So walk me through that a little bit. Yeah. So I actually started in elementary education uh, my freshman year of college. And going into that, I kind of decided that I wanted to make more of an individual impact and systematic impact. So being a psychologist allows you to work as part of larger institutions like a hospital and have an impact on patient care that way. And I like the idea of working one-on-one with patients, whereas in a classroom, you're seeing all the kids. So I did that for a year. And then I actually graduated with a degree in speech pathology, which I really enjoyed. I just once again decided in applying to grad school that I wanted to look at more of the whole person perspective. So like a model we use is biopsychosocial, spiritual, cultural, mm-hmm. and you just get to address more parts of a person in psych versus speech pathology. So that's kind of what got me here. Interesting. Are you an extrovert? Yeah. Yeah, I am. It's funny. We actually have to take, or not have to, but we take our own like psychological assessments, like personality assessments legit ones Mm -hmm. and yeah definitely nice yeah nice what other fun facts about your personality are there yeah I'm super extroverted I 
I think I think you'll relate to this, but I tend to score or like live life in value openness and curiosity. So I like to do different things. I like to learn different things. And uh, I would think a podcast host would agree with that sentiment. (laughs) Definitely. That is exactly what this podcast is based upon. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah. Were you also another parallel between us maybe? I don't remember you being much of a tomboy. But were you a tomboy? Um, yeah, I think I think some people would perceive me to be with the sports stuff. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that was like that was part of my identity for sure. That was definitely part of yours, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I had the hardest time making friends with girls. It's so much more complicated. And then I would just be like, you know, I could just go fl- play football, and there wouldn't be like weird politics going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I respect it. Um, yeah, the drama. Are you really highly empathetic? Um, that it feels less empathetic to say that one is empathetic, but, um, (laughs) um, yeah, I think that's a trait that's important in psych and any kind of social service. A big part of it is fostering, uh, really a skill in being able to step into someone else's shoes and experience life as they experience it. And I think that's one of the more powerful parts of psychology. And it's also one of the more um, difficult parts of being a PsyD student. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think it's really important with all of the different people that you work with and see to be able to not just understand life through your own frame, but understand life through their worldview and frame. So I think I, I to answer that, I guess I would try to be empathetic as best I can. Yeah. yeah. Were you yeah. always... Or did it kind of come with your learning and stuff? I think there are some natural ways that people know how to be in relationship with other people. So I think there are some ways where I found that I'm, I think with the curiosity and openness, I like to hear other people's stories and I'm interested in them. And that's something I love about what I'm able to do is you just get to hear story all the time. But I do think as I've grown and as I learn more, I become more and more empathetic. And a big part of that for me is understanding how environmental factors impact how people show up and live in their everyday lives. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important piece of fostering empathy for people in all situations. So that's something that I've really grown in over, I'd say like the last five years, five or six years. Mm -hmm. For sure. In high school, I would have considered myself one of the least empathetic people on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I knew that I didn't like that about myself, but I also didn't know that it was something that could change. Mm. But then the first year I was married, I just started reading like crazy. And Mm. the more I read, and especially with each memoir I read, I thought, oh my goodness, I know nothing. So... (laughs) And I know nothing about how to live and like why people choose things. So that's just kind of been my obsession over the last few years. And now when I take personality tests, I score really high on like compassion and stuff. So I went from zero to 80 pretty quick. Yes. I, yeah, no, I totally feel like that's, that's how it works is learning other people's stories. I, are you a big nonfiction biography memoir person? Yes. Yes, definitely. That's my, that's me too. That's yes, yes. That's a, one of the primary places of my learning too. Yeah, and I think that's that's part like partially 
I could say the same thing for, for myself. And I think that's partially living and growing up in the culture that we lived in. Just because it was more homogenous, it was mm-hmm. harder to, and, and developmentally too, being younger, but it's harder to put your feet in someone else's shoes when you don't meet other people that are way different from you all the time mm-hmm. or don't have a value of identifying that. Mm-hmm. Are you doing therapy now? Yes. So the way our program works is it's, it's five years. The first year you just do classes and then the next three you do two days a week at a practicum site where you see patients and like role like you're a professional. And then um, the next three days of the week are classes. And so every year I go to a new practicum site. So in short, yeah. And I'm, I'm loving it. It's been really awesome. That is so, so cool. So yeah. how have you found it dealing with like, you're listening to people's problems and people probably right. aren't coming to therapy unless something's really wrong. So like, how are you able to take that and not internalize it and also not feel like you need to go home and talk to your husband about it? Cause that's kind of illegal. Yeah. 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 You have to have that confidentiality. That's true. Well, it's really interesting where I'm at is a, it's a community mental health center. So we work with people who are uninsured and underinsured in the County. So it's all paid in cash, cheap therapy, So you get all kinds of people with all kinds of problems and traditionally community mental health is a little higher acuity. So people that have a lot of negative social determinants of health. So yeah, you hear really terrible things and awful things that humans do to each other. And I think one thing that has stuck with me or has really been on my mind since starting, because I started in like July, and that keeps me feeling like that countertransference, like I'm not being, my mental health isn't at risk because I'm hearing all of these mm-hmm. negative things. Is I really just think about the courage of everyone that I see. Everyone that I have a conversation with, I think presents with a lot of courage and resilience just for showing up. And when I hear their stories about how humans have treated them really poorly, or maybe how they're treating other humans poorly, I think I just remember the resilience that it takes for each of those people to live out their story. And I think that there's kind of a hope in that and a grace in that and and being witness to that story and that courage. I think also I have really good supervision. I meet with a supervisor an hour a week and we talk about cases and how I'm doing. And that feels good to just to be able to release Mm-hmm. And sometimes literally just retelling that story to my supervisor, which is ethical because he's part of the informed consent. But um, yeah, I think I think that release and being with other people that are doing sessions, my cohort mates, and being able to laugh and cry about the things that we're witnessing is, is really helpful too. Are there any... I don't know what's legal to even talk about in passing, but are there, (laughs) I don't know how this works, but are there any particular stories or excerpts that you found particularly interesting or inspiring? You know, it's, it's really funny. I think the inspiration is in the ordinary. It's, It's almost like every single person I talk to has some point of, of this like growth or resilience or hope. Yeah, I can't, basically I can't share things that would be identifying information, but some things are vague enough I could be talking about anybody. So let me think. 
Yeah, I, I think what, what strikes me the most is when people, especially by their attachment figures, like mom and dad, mm-hmm. or, or abused or neglected or some form of misattunement and how they're engaging with that person as they're developing, watching that person or those people coming into session and really dedicating themselves to not treating other people how they were treated and, and the work and the pain and the hurt that they have to go through in order to make that happen, I, I think is just really inspiring mm-hmm. because they're really stepping up. Like, like a joke and something I think about a lot is a lot of the people I have in therapy are there because of the other people that should have gone to therapy and didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's just really inspiring to me is to watch people struggle through the, the pain in a way that if their say primary attachment figure would have that their life would have been different and mm-hmm. so like I guess you could say kind of breaking a cycle yeah for sure watching, watching that unfold over time is really rewarding yeah. yeah so for some people who may not be really familiar with attachment theory yeah. and that kind of stuff do you want to get yeah, a yeah. quick overview yeah um so it's like Ainsworth and uh Bowlby were the early attachment psychologists and they uh, theorized and experimented with four different types of attachment that they started using and applying to um, parents in their interactions with children. And so the four different types are secure, which is like a healthy attachment, um, insecure, avoidant, insecure, ambivalent, and disorganized. And those four types just have to do with varying degrees of how someone is attuning to their child. Are they um, understanding their child's experiences and able to mirror that back to the child. If so, it's more of a secure attachment. If they are overly comforting to the child and don't allow proper autonomy, that can lead to insecure attachment. And if they are um, neglectful, that can lead to an insecure attachment. And then the disorganized tends to be some of the more grotesque, like child abuse comes from that. Okay. Interesting. I could like go off, but I don't think it's useful. (laughs) Okay. Maybe we could just do that on a separate time. Yeah. yeah. You guys Google it, you know. (laughs) But okay. So isn't eye contact really important too? Uh, Yeah. That's, that's part of how, when they did the research, they coded the different kids. Eye contact can um, be part of that attunement process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I I just love observing moms with their babies. And like the babies that just light up when their mom picks them up. Like they may not be fussy if someone else is holding yeah. them, but as soon as they go to their mom, their face lights up and they're looking at each other and smiling. It is the greatest thing on the planet. Yeah, they know that's their person. They mm-hmm. know that they're safe. Um and it's interesting too cuz I did a lot of developmental psych as part of speech path. So I have, I have a lot of thoughts that go through my mind when I see parents and kids. I'm like analyzing their language development and their motor development and whatever. So, yeah. You know, kids who don't have as good of a, an attachment, they don't develop like verbally and lang- they don't develop language as quickly, do they either? I think I just heard that yesterday, but I may have made it up. I mean, I believe it. I, I don't know exactly, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if that could be true, especially if the child is really being neglected. Mm -hmm. So would you be specifically in your therapy 
it sounds like you kind of are drawn to kids. Would you do specifically like kid therapy or are you kind of open to all of it? You know, I'm hoping to do, I'm hoping to work with a lifespan. The setting I'm interested in is called like integrative behavioral health through a primary care site. So basically a primary care physician, you work alongside them in a hospital. And so you see everybody that a primary care physician would see. Um, but right now I have a patient who's eight and that's my youngest. And then I have a patient who's 35. So that is kind of on the younger side. Mm-hmm. I, I do like the, I like, the, I like the little ones. I like the families, but I think even more so I enjoy working with like adolescents or early adults. I think I'm really drawn to that identity development process and, and maybe that'll change because I'm kind of in that process. Sure. So I think it's like closer to me, but, um, that's more of what I'm drawn to right now. Interesting. Yeah. So identity development, tell me more. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Say more about that. Um, yeah. So the, the, um, mode of psychotherapy I use is accept- acceptance and commitment therapy. And one of the core components of that is values-based living, like living a meaningful life and helping people identify what's important to them and how to, despite all the ickiness, live out those values and lead a meaningful life. And I've just noticed that, especially with young adults, there's just so much, you know, in this developmental process, you're leaving your parents, you're finding your own way, you get to kind of lay everything out on the table, especially in American culture, you get to lay everything out on the table and say, okay, this is what I have. Here are all these other things. Now, how am I going to choose? What kind of things am I going to take with me into adulthood that I had in my adolescence and childhood? And it's really fun work. It's really cool. People come in really lost in this idea of who am I? Mm-hmm. Um, especially when there's anxiety and depression involved, because sometimes that can take over our identities mm-hmm. because it's so um, salient or acute or anxiety is kind of leading us and telling us how to live our lives. And so, yeah, I just, I really enjoy figuring out what's important and what does that look like? And what are you keeping from your old self? What are you um, throwing away? What's new? Yeah, it's, it's just a good time. It's cool. Interesting. So yeah, this yeah. year, I, well, Corona panic brought up a lot of things that I apparently had not dealt with. Mm-hmm. So I went into a major, major spiral. And then I went through therapy and got a lot of it fixed really fast with EMDR. It's shocking, EMDR. Wow. We can talk about EMDR. Yeah. It was, um, I couldn't even believe it. I was like, is this witchcraft? (laughs) I don't understand. (laughs) So then I also felt like, um, I used a really, really stretched analogy of the Israelites leaving Egypt, but how it was like, they're free from the slavery of the past, but now they're in the desert and they're like, now what? I'm so lost. Any structure I had is gone. Mm. So... I kind of almost feel like it'd be nice to go back because then I would be familiar. So I had that really, really weird experience and I still have no idea. Like this total identity thing, no idea. Also, (laughs) thoughts on 
what, because this is what I think, so I probably shouldn't try to mask this in a question. I think that social media creates Mm -hmm. an interesting identity thing because you're putting a version of yourself out there. And now you may not want to change and leave behind what you've already just shown to the world. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I have, I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah, no, I think your Israelite metaphor is beautiful and I might use it. So I love that because um, I have a lot of Christian patients. And in the, in the, the desert part, that's what I'm getting at with the courage because it's hard and it sucks it's sometimes it's easier just to be how you are because it doesn't Mm -hmm. take that work. So I really, I love that too. But third part, yes, social media, it's really interesting because in the different philosophies that kind of the, especially like Eurocentric world has used to define the self, um, how it's changed over time. I think kind of what we're experiencing is this uh, multiple self, this plural self, So like I have myself, but then I also have my Facebook self, my Instagram self, my TikTok self, my Twitter (laughs) self or whatever, my Snapchat self. And it's really confusing and it's weird. And trying to change is hard because you put yourself out there in one way and that's the way everyone knows you. So is there that ability to change with the people that you're around? Like, are they accepting of your change? Mm-hmm. kind of the question I'm coming to so yeah no I think that's huge I think that's something a lot of people deal with okay another question about the making depression and anxiety a little bit of an identity in and of itself uh-huh. so why is this a thing that people do huh. yeah I mean I think it's just So part of like one of my other theoretical orientations I like, which is narrative therapy, is like separating the problem from the self. Um, But really, when you look at it, your your thoughts are you, your emotions are you, your feelings are you, your experiences are you. And so I think we get really, it's just really easy when your physiology is telling you something and your cognitions are telling you something to just lead with it. You know, and I don't really blame people for that. I think it's really easy to listen to depression, anxiety, and I think that's a natural thing. I think we can all do better, though, in being able to understand where our emotions and experiences and cognitions are leading us and where they're coming from. So I think that insight is really important. I don't know how to answer that. I don't know. I don't know why it's easy to have an identity in anxiety and depression, except for the fact that it's, it's in a lot of ways, uh, it's a coalescing of your self and your experiences that are manifesting somehow. I'm curious how you, what do you think about that? So one thing that I would think, because people are really, really good at falling off the horse on the other side they're like we don't like this so I guess we'll just swing so hard that we end up kicking ourselves over so (laughs) (laughs) it looks to me like it we went from mental illness is like fake like you're making it up calm down okay like from that to so much acceptance that now it is like look at me and now it with Twitter and Facebook 
you can also get a lot of attention if you post, oh, I feel so bad today. You'll start getting attention and then you get in a weird loop where now you're getting dopamine, those dopamine kicks for likes and comments every time you say how bad you're feeling. Yeah, yeah. So that's a little bit what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting too because in this theoretical orientation that I'm talking about, they would call that fusion um, or like self as context. So instead of seeing your depression as a thing, or like your sadness is a thing, you see it as, as you. And so, yeah, it's interesting because I think sometimes the perception of people who don't know very much about mental health would say that mental health is encouraging of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. When really it's not like we, like everybody recognizes that that's not mental health, you know? And I think you're totally spot on with, you can, you can get, yeah, that attention and that like kind of positive reinforcement from staying in your doom and gloom a little bit. Shoot, I had a question on the top of my head. This is the number one thing I need to work on is keeping something in my brain while I'm while we're talking about something else. I mean, it's hard. That means you're listening well. Yeah, I'm sure but, yeah, it'll come back. It's come and gone a couple times by now. Oh, is there anything in particular that has really blown your mind in your learning and schooling? Jeez, everything. I think every time I've taken a class, even an undergrad, like I had this sociology class in particular that, and it was my freshman year. So I'm kind of fresh in just learning things. And I feel like I cried every <laughs> single class period in that sociology class. Oh. Yeah. Cause it's just like bringing so much. I love, yeah, I just love, I really like sociology. And I think in that class, it was just putting words to these experiences in these structures that I didn't know existed. So, so those, God, like literally everything blows my mind, but that class in particular had a lot of cool moments where I was just like, oh, people know this, people study this, this is a thing, I can know this. So being so blown away by sociology, why didn't you go the sociology route? To be honest, I hope there's no sociology people listening, but I think (laughs) think, um, as a psychologist, you have more autonomy in the, um, like the positions I want to work in. So I I think that's why I could have, like, if I just wanted to do research, research, I could have been a sociologist and like a professor, but that wasn't as enticing to me. And then if you're a sociology major, you go into social work and- Mm -hmm. I think on the whole, I feel like I can do what I want to do and have the autonomy that I want as a psychologist. So I can do a lot of the things that a sociologist can do and some other things, but all you social social workers out there, don't come at me. (laughs) I think it's a really good field too. Yeah. I would really like to talk to some social workers. It is really interesting. And like growing up in the kind of environment like really conservative environment yeah yeah it like social workers were like the enemy they might come and take your kids ah which they might if you're bad parents so that's just been interesting to think about yeah i would really like to talk to some if you know any (laughs) i know one i can send your way okay now that's really that's a really interesting point is that based on how you grew up sociology could be 
a really negative, you'd hate like a caseworker, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, I know in a hospital setting, the people I'd work with do a lot of just case management. So they'll set someone up, say they're homeless, they'll set them up with, you know, a shelter or some kind of other um, program to get food, some program to do whatever, some program to get mental health. So that's, that's what a lot of the people I know do. Or there's some social workers that work in like inpatient mental health and they do like groups, group work and some like assessment type stuff. So anyways, yeah, <laughs> kind of a side tangent, but yeah. Okay. Back to if there was yeah. anything in particular, particular that blew your mind. Well, I'll just share my like latest thing. I'm sure you saw it on Instagram, but yesterday, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yesterday, my supervisor, who's awesome, was telling me that crying releases cortisol, which is a stress hormone in your body. And so literally when you cry, you're crying out your stress hormone to make yourself feel better. So I I found that like, did not know that. I found that really interesting. And that's something else I'm really interested in is some of this integration with health, like physiological health and mental health and some of those connections. So I was pretty, I was, I was pretty into that. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I had a good cry last night. And let me tell you, I felt better when I was done with it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, also to physiology and mental health, I noticed significantly last week, I just sat back and thought about it, that, Mm -hmm. oh my goodness, my shoulders don't hurt anymore. Even when I was in high school, I would have horrible shoulder and neck pain. Like, it felt like I had just exercised those muscles. Like, you, they felt like actual bones when you touched them. They were so tight. Yeah. And just this last week, I realized, oh, my goodness, this hasn't hurt me in a long time. So, people, go to therapy. <laughs> It'll <laughs> yes, fix your, yes. ac- your body, too. Yes. No, that's so, I love that you brought that up. It's totally true. I, one of my things is headaches. I get really bad stress headaches and I did not know that it was related to that until just recently. Yeah. And I think that's something too, developmentally when you're a kid or a teenager, you just don't have the language and maybe even some of the mentorship to let you know, like, Oh, I am feeling a certain type of way. And so you kind of carry it in your body, but Mm -hmm. yeah, no, I feel that I get really bad migraines. Did you have, we can take this out if it has to be, but did you have any traumas in your childhood? Yeah. Yeah. My dad, my dad struggled with alcohol for most of my life. And then my mom has depression and has been depressed most of my life on kind of like a serious depression medication. Um, So I think both of those things really influenced me and I think influenced my my interest in this stuff which I think it sounds like you kind of have a similar story in that you're like after you learn things you came out of that environment it's like oh my gosh I start seeing more clearly Mm -hmm. and so yeah no I definitely do and it's been and that's actually something coming into a PsyD program Um, you have to talk a lot about your own stuff and you have to like write papers about your own stuff and like get graded on your own stuff, which is kind of a weird experience, but I definitely had, especially last spring, like an uptick in PTSD symptoms, like Hmm. just that, you know, arousal, like heart beating, flashbacks, nightmares, all that. 
I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it just, you know, I've talked a lot about it. Yeah. Like I said, I have talked a lot about it. So yeah. it's just, you know, it is what it is where I think that's something too that I've learned is pain just is and suffering just is, and it's part of the human experience and not to minimize it, but it just is. Yeah. And it's something we all carry. So, yeah. So that actually reminded me of the question I forgot earlier, which Good. I have discussed this with my sister a little bit, the mm -hmm. idea of resilience. Mm -hmm. And number one, is it a skill or is it a personality trait or is it a character trait? I would say all three, but I'm so glad you asked because, um, so I'm hoping it's looking like my dissertation is going to be on post-traumatic growth. So it's this idea that, yeah, have you heard of it? Or it's just like, no, I just sounded, I felt <laughs> excited when you said it. Yeah. 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 So, um, it's this idea that after a traumatic event, uh, most everyone has a period where they don't do well and things are happening. Lots of PTSD symptoms. It's hard, but in some of the research literature, they found that there's after the traumatic event, after everybody does worse, there's actually three different groups that appear. And one um, kind of maintains at that worst place with a lot of PTSD symptoms. Another group is a resilience group. So they are able to come back up to baseline. And um, there's a third group called the post-traumatic growth group who actually, after the traumatic event and after the negative symptoms, they actually grow past what their baseline functioning was or their understanding of meaning and growth. <clears throat> In the world. Um, so they actually do better and find more um, meaning from life after a traumatic event. So to your question, um, and some of the like, some of the research I've read and looked through, all of it, resilience can be traced to different personality factors like openness, and extroversion. Um, it can also be traced to different coping skills, like being able to reach out and get social support or uh, you know, problem solve, things like that. So I would say resilience has a lot of biological factors connected to it, but in all things, um, there's also risk and protective factors. So your environment can kind of set you up to be more resilient or not as well. Yeah, so that's the resilient group. And then the post-traumatic growth group, they kind of conceptualize it as being able to use that traumatic event to change one's understanding of the world. It changes their worldview and their understanding of how to make meaning of life. So yeah, hmm. kind of, kind of cool stuff. I'm really excited about it. Interesting. So, yeah. Do you know who Jordan Peterson is? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He has talked a lot about this kind of thing. So there's, kind of a correlation between people who have stronger PTSD from maybe if there's multiple people in the same environment who experience yes. the same mm -hmm. thing. The people with higher PTSD are generally the more naive type people. Because like there's something that when your worldview is so shocked by how bad something could be, the worse the PTSD will be. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a thing because it's, yeah, there's so much, there's a lot of theory and research around worldview and PTSD and you're exactly right because you can even conceptualize trauma as, as a change in worldview 
because that trauma is telling you something you thought before is no longer true. I thought this person was safe. They're no longer safe. I thought I could get in the car and go from point A to point B, but this thing has happened and that's not true anymore. And so, yeah, that's, that's totally, that's totally right. Um, you made me think of too, something I heard from a classmate that I think is a really cool way to think about trauma is the way she explains it is in this traumatic event, there was part of you that thought it was going to die. Even if that was, even if you weren't like physiologically threatened to actually die, there was some kind of, there was some part of you that thought it was going to die, whether that be your sense of self thought it was going to die, it, whether you thought it was your, um, you could say like your joy or whatever, you could um, do all kinds of metaphor with that. But yeah, part of you thought it was going to die because of this experience that you had. How much um, are you allowed in therapy and stuff to talk about Christianity and religion and that kind of stuff? Yeah, so it's it's kind of interesting. I have a I, I have more training in that because George Fox is actually technically like a Christian integration program because George Fox University is like a Quaker university. So there's some like Protestant roots in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, love the Quakers. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause you thought about going there too, but um, yeah. So actually I have a lot of different classes that's Christian integration into psychology. So we talk about how theology relates to, psychology um and how to bring someone because basically the 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 fuller premise is that people are spiritual beings as well and their spirituality is important to them and the premise is it's just like any other cultural factor if you are neglecting to bring that into the room then you are neglecting a part of that person that is important to them like you're ignoring an important identity marker so I think kind of the rule of thumb is that it's brought into therapy as much as the patient wants it to be. So I would never initiate, but if the patient says like, oh my gosh, like I'm really struggling. I'm just like so angry at God right now. Then, then we can talk about that in, in their context. One thing that I'm super, super curious about with worldview, I wish I had more atheists in my life. I have none that I know of. <laughs> But I really legitimately want to understand how you can make sense of the world and not be nihilistic and not be hedonistic with an atheist worldview. Because most of what gets me through my day is knowing this world isn't it for me. Mm -hmm. And I had a big moment when Corona panic happened. I was listening to a podcast about historical plagues. And <laughs> <laughs> as I'm sure everyone did, but my takeaway was he just mentioned like six plagues and he only mentioned one person's name. Hmm. And then I thought, we're all going to be forgotten. It's a good thing that I don't believe that this world is it. And that there's another, there's a heaven where we can be f there forever. So based on that, how do you function without that? I, um, well, I am still Protestant. Like I identify as Protestant. We, like my husband's a PK. So I might not be the, mine too. 
Yeah, yeah. So I might be the might not be the best to speak on um, other worldviews, I guess, and, and how they live life. But I think um, for one, I think people, I th I think it's an assumption to say that you have to have a religion to have a value system and to make meaning of life. I think probably the idea is where a lot of, especially evangelical Christians, place a lot of emphasis on the afterlife and heaven and that kind of way to push you forward like you did, which is great. The focus might be on more of the present moment and how I can live into my values in the present moment and what I find important. And so, and that's really not hedonistic at all because a lot of times people's values are the relationships with others and the health of those relationships. Um, giving is a big one. I have a patient who talks a lot about kindness. So I think, I think where they may, you know, cause I'm not, but where they might find meaning is maybe some of these broader societal mores or societal morals that kind of guide humans. Yeah. So there's just not that overarching structure from an institution, I think mm -hmm. is kind of the big difference. But yeah. Probably there's a lot of adjacent morals and ethics. Yeah. So I listen to podcasts with these theists on them because, again, I know none in real life, apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, I get, I get that part. And then on a surface level, I'm like, that's great. You want the life that you're in. I mean, assuming that you're not a person that's easily depressed because I feel like if you're volatile like in that kind of way you're more likely to struggle but if you're somewhat neutral you can maybe stick with kindness and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff but for me personally it's just well where is where is it coming from mm. and like is it actually doing good so f for me I just mm. I ruminate on the existential so much yeah I love and I that know that lots of people don't yeah, I mean, honestly, there's people that are practicing religions and not that do or, or don't that do not think about those things. I, I'm curious about that, too. And I like to think of existential as well. Um, something I read a book by an atheist um, and it was really interesting to hear him talk about the beauty of the fine, the finite nature of life and some of this like you won't be remembered and you are just you. And I, I don't know, you have to, I have to find a quote or something because I don't want to misrepresent, but I, I find that he found a real beauty in that we are here and this is the time that we have. And when it's done, it's done. And I know I've even, after reading that book or, you know, just thinking about some of this existential stuff, I think I read a poem that talked about some of the cyclical nature of life and the different seasons that we have. This is all going to come together. But I also had a lifespan class where they talked about what happens when your body decays when you die. And I actually find a lot of comfort in the possibility. Like sometimes I'll just sit and I'll think about my like dead body underground. I'm dead serious. I really think about this like quite often, like probably once or twice every two weeks. I think about my dead body in the ground <laughs> decaying and how all of the different parts of me will be used to make soil that will grow something new. I just, I don't know. I think that's really cool. <laughs> so I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people can make sense of, of their life. And I think part of it is an acceptance that 
maybe your life's not that meaningful. Maybe you just are here and you die and that's okay too. So, yeah. I am thoroughly disturbed. Yeah. Like I, that I, is I, a full out nightmare for me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I don't know why. I just, I found that that is very important for me to meditate on is just me dying but it's kind of cool. Okay. Like side note, there's some cool things. Like when you're, when you die, like hours before you die, you st- your stomach stops digesting things so that the bacteria in your stomach can be used to decompose your body. Did you know that? No. Yes. That's a thing. Oh, and there's something else with the eyes too. Like your eyes actually, like they have like a line that goes through them when you die, like um, something with the blood vessels and stuff. Anyways. Okay. Yeah, so this really brings up another thought that I was talking with some friends yeah. the other day. Mm-hmm. Because there are some things that are really confusing to me when I look at how, okay, so being raised how I was raised, and I'm sure you got it a lot because we went to the same church, right. but like yeah, the, the traditional seven day creation, that kind of stuff. And I don't, if this is heresy, please do not write me an angry <laughs> email. <laughs> but I like, I was I like to start that sentence. What's up? About are were humans actually immortal in the Garden of Eden? Because yeah, it says so in the garden there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. And when they were kicked out of the garden, the angels were put at the entrance to keep them from going in to eat of the tree of life. So I was thinking about that and thinking like, were we actually made to be immortal? Or could we have still died without the sin? Part? Interesting. Like, okay, so that's bordering on heresy here. No, I, I mean, that, I feel like that logic fits. But <laughs> yeah. then... Mm-hmm. If what you're saying is that there seem to be some really systematic processes to help decompose your body, I just have to wonder why God would do that. If you're already going to die, what if Adam and Eve didn't have that? What if they were not humans? What if they were like humans, but like angel humans? <laughs> it's kind of what that would say. <laughs> angel humans? Well, I think they were humans. So I had a lady on this podcast pretty early on, and she was a theistic evolutionist, which is getting closer to where I'm finding myself landing by the day. Yeah, Yeah, I like that. Cool. But she kind of used the picture of like, there are all of the human ancestors, you know, but they were more of an animal, truly, like they didn't have the soul and the spirit. And Mm -hmm. as God let the earth develop and these processes that he designed go about and then he's like okay i guess it's time to make humans so then he creates the homo sapiens and at this particular point in time he puts in the soul and spirit and that's the created in god's image part and so that's why apparently but there's kind of an explosion randomly at the same time all over Mm -hmm. from very very primitive evidence of tools of just kind of being like rocks and sticks to going to tools and going to music and drawings and art and like fire being figured out that there was such an extreme explosion all at once um so i did a lot of talking and i forgot where i was going when i started (laughs) 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. I, and I was teasing when I said Adam and Eve weren't human. Okay. But, but um, yeah, you were saying you were relating evolution and creationism yeah. with the garden and whether they were supposed to be immortal or not. Yeah. Okay. And then the dying process that you but mentioned. Then that, yeah. But then yeah. that kind of caused, yeah, that's some dissonance because if we were meant to, if we were immortal, why do we have stomachs that help us decompose our bodies? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun just to kind of play around with these different, with these different things for sure. So, yeah. And that started with the integration of Christianity and psychology. Yeah. So we're integrating all kinds of things. <laughs> How weird is it when you have older people coming to you for therapy? I well, to be honest, I have tried really hard to avoid it. So obviously <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. No, um, actually I do have one person. I actually do have one person that's older now. I think she's in her forties. And you know, it, it is strange. I think there's like a power dynamic that happens there that is different for all people and sometimes you have to address that a little bit more but I also would say that people trust I think people trust education enough to trust me sure but but there are definitely there are definitely patients that come in like I had a lady on the phone that was like she needs some like talking about this person that's going to come to therapy she's like she needs someone more mature you know, oh. and I'm like, okay, well, our oldest person's probably 26 in this clinic, so you're gonna have to find yourself a different clinic. But um, I don't know. I think for me, I sometimes when I'm working with someone and there is that power dynamic, I have a harder time being direct, and so that's something I'm working on. And maybe I won't push as hard as I will people where there's not that power dynamic. It's really interesting. You kind of have to just like present the persona that you've lived your life you know <laughs> and you have some wisdom sure so yeah also but. what are some of the different dynamics that you get with men versus women totally I this is another thing I struggle with I think just coming from more of a like masculine valued culture and just me being me in the world same thing I I, I have a harder time pushing back I have a harder time being direct and I think sometimes I'm projecting, but I think sometimes men are also two things. One, they like to have a female in therapy because male to male intimacy with emotional understanding like is, does not exist in a lot of culture. So, so that's one thing that is beneficial as a female therapist with a male patient is because you're probably the person that they're going to be most vulnerable with hmm. emotionally, aside from like their spouse, say. Um, but the other thing is that I think sometimes there's um, kind of an implicit, like wanting to take care of you because you're a female. So maybe maybe someone apologizes for saying for sharing something really intense, or they are hesitant to disclose something that might be uh, more aggressive or something like that. So there there's a lot of there's a lot of things that can happen with that. It's really interesting. How confrontational are you just in normal life? Not at all. Super, super passive. Like I can be assertive, but I'm not like, let's fight. You know? I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. I'm a let's fight. 
<laughs> it's not that I like to fight. I just don't like there being something bothering somebody. So I'm like, if it needs to come out, it will come out at some point. Can we just make it right now and get it over with? Yeah, that's good assertiveness. And that can be really protective too. I think it's good to have a little bit of that fire. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it definitely, not everyone appreciates it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't please everybody. Yeah. But yeah, for sure. I don't know. I, I kind of tend to be like the make everybody happy. Being well liked. Sometimes that's, you know, that could be a barrier to being a good um, therapist if you're just trying to appease sure. someone. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So like if someone comes to you one day and then they don't come back, does that make you a little sad? That not as much that I can do my dissonance and be like, oh, you know, they were busy. <laughs> but but I, I also say I'm really respectful in that I know that I'm not the person for everybody. And like therapy is about the person coming in, not about me. So if and I even tell people that in intake, like if you don't like what's happening, you know, either tell me or if you really don't like it, it's about you. So find find who you're going to like. Because actually, I think it's like 85% of change in therapy comes from the relationship. So if you're, if you hate your therapist, you shouldn't go. <laughs> you should go find somebody else. <laughs> yeah. That's a good call. Oh, so a couple questions here. One, how has all of your learning and therapy and that kind of stuff impacted your relationship with your husband? Number two. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Does he get frustrated if you try to psychoanalyze him? <laughs> I love those guys. Yeah. Okay. So, background: Michael's mom is a clinical psychologist, and awesome. not just any clinical psychologist. She's like, she's like the boss psychologist. Like, she was. I think she was president of APA at one point, like Dang. the American Psychological Association. So she's like a big deal. So he kind of is used to it, and but he's actually really. I share a lot of what I'm learning with him, so it's fun. He'll be able. Like, it's fun when I. I learned something I teach to him and then we both share that language like in person-centered therapy there's this thing called congruence and so we talk about congruence all the time um but there definitely are times where it's really hard where, where like I want to say something that's more like therapist mode if I have to hold back and sometimes I do and he, he has said before like don't psychoanalyze me he has said those words to me before but um but for the most part Michael like gets it he actually I think he has like a certified like bachelor's in psych because his mom and I talk about it so much. So yeah. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I like to psychoanalyze everybody and Jordan does not like it <laughs> if I try to psychoanalyze him. And it's worse because I have no training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so great. No, I, yeah, Michael, Michael's pretty good about it for the most part. Sometimes he tries to tell me what's up and I'm not into that either. <laughs> so, yeah, moral of the story, don't tell people what to do or how they yeah. feel. Yeah, so. yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. How has this really impacted your relationship? Honestly, I think it's been really good for our relationship. And I think he would say the same thing. Because my, I think it, probably the biggest thing is my mental health's gotten a lot better. Michael has way more emotional intelligence skills than I do from his upbringing. And he is really good about if something's coming up for him, he'll just be like, hey, Kylie, this thing really bothered me or I'm upset about this, whatever. And he communicates like immediately and kindly and mm -hmm. all the ways that you're supposed to communicate how you're feeling to your spouse or like what's going on with you. And I think early on in our relationship, for a lot of reasons, 
I held on to my frustrations and I just let them grow and grow and grow instead of just communicating how I was feeling or how Michael could like help me out. So all that to say, this program has helped my mental health and my ability to communicate well with my spouse. And I think like we're in a really good place. So I think it's really actually helped our relationship a lot. And so I feel like I have better insight into what my my problems are and, and kind of how to address that in a relationship. So yeah, I think you'd say the same thing too. It's been really good. So asking for a friend. Yeah, yeah. Anger management. How does one do it? Well, there's a lot of, I think a lot of those people end up being court mandated. Oh, and you- awesome oh my gosh no um yeah so you do group or individual anger management and actually it's really cool and people get a lot better and they love it but I think I'm taking this way more seriously than you intended (laughs) oh my gosh that's awesome yeah, I don't know, man. There's a lot of things to be angry about, though. I get, like, such a physiological response that I, like, can't. It takes a while for me to calm down. So yeah. that's, like, I just don't, I need some better skills of, like, if I'm feeling often, so this is what's happening, is before I necessarily am recognizing what's happening, my body is, like, gone in full fight or flight. Uh-huh. So I need to learn mm-hmm. how to chill that out so then I can recenter better, faster. Yeah, yeah, that takes time. And that's, that's a good, there's something called polyvagal theory that talks about uh, the fight or flight response in therapy. And so that's like a, you might be interested in that. But yeah, it, that, you know, that's something I really struggle with and still struggle with, especially in my marriage. Like if something ticks me off, it used to be, it'd take me like an hour probably, which for something really stupid, like super small mm-hmm. and I get hangry too. But <laughs> I think, I think, I think over time you just get better at, um, kind of idea, identifying those things earlier before you're at a 10. Mm-hmm. So instead, like when you're two or three and then figuring out how to like chill out, but I don't know, it's hard. It takes time. I'm still trying to get better at that too. It's tough. I don't know. I, I'm mad too. It's okay. <laughs> Oh my goodness. You really scared me when you said court mandated. That was not. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> you can't, I know, I know, I know. Someone like me, like, I actually, like, yeah, like, we do that. <laughs> Have you ever had anyone get angry at you in therapy? Like, in a session? Probably. Have they told me no? But I'm sure, I'm oh. sure people. Well, I'm sure, I meant, but... like, you would know like angry angry I'm sure they have I haven't gotten I mean it's a matter of time because that that just happens um I don't know I think I don't think so no no one's been like aggressive at me in therapy so that's nice 10 out of 10 hopefully that maintains for a little bit longer but I it's kind of like just the name of the game someone will sure someone will not like me and that's okay (laughs) so (laughs) yeah but a lot of times that's like a good sign of growth because like you're you're hitting something important, you know. Anytime there's kind of a big emotion, you're like, oh, okay, we're going somewhere. Like something is happening, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a good sign in some ways. So this is my not that profound of a thought, 
about anger. So what it appears to be for me, I better talk into my microphone. I'll try to be professional. So it seems to be a re it's actually like a fear reaction almost like Mm -hmm. fear and anger seem like two sides of the same coin Mm -hmm. where it is a self-defense mechanism so something feels threatened and the fear could be like the run response and the anger is the fight response so Mm -hmm. interesting story Mm -hmm. this is so funny i was waiting for an opportunity to share this um so a few months ago jordan was going to a job interview and for no reason he did not say it i thought it was in fruitland which is where we lived Mm -hmm. it was not in fruitland it was in boise so he had to drive but he also went on his motorcycle which i didn't know so i was trying to call him like hey how'd the interview go but he didn't answer and i thought it was in fruitland so he should have been done by now and he's not Uh answering me Mm -hmm. and then he is like never not answered before. So then it was getting long enough that I was like, something's going on. Yeah. So then I called his job and he was a few minutes late. And let me tell you, this guy has never been late for work. Mm. Never been late for work. So then I sprint home. By sprint, I mean drive. And <laughs> <laughs> I come in the house and he wasn't here. I was hoping that something had been weird and he was just home and it was fine. He wasn't here call him again nothing so then i called the police (laughs) was there maybe a motorcycle accident possibly and they said there wasn't but they would send a cop over to my house and then as soon as i got off the phone with the police jordan called me and he was like hey what's up (laughs) (laughs) i was like what's up but it was crazy because as soon as my fear was gone like he's alive I immediately wanted to punch him in the face (laughs) and I was like oh my goodness I think fear and anger are almost exactly the same thing and it's just a response to a threat yeah I love that no that's so funny I know it's funny that's interesting too you say that because it could like that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective because some of that anger could like get you going yeah yeah no that's something that a lot of when you talk about anger with patients, a lot of people use like a, like an iceberg metaphor. Like anger is just the tip of the iceberg, but it's, it's the manifestation of a lot of the other underlying emotions that you're feeling that are more difficult to communicate. And then they kind of like blow into anger. It's interesting culturally too, like, especially with men or more masculine cultures, anger tends to be the only acceptable emotion. And so yeah, I work with, yeah, I've done that work before where it's like, okay, you say you're pissed off, but you also said all these other things that make me think that you just felt uncared for and hurt. And then it's like, oh yeah, that's how I felt. Like, okay. So, so pissed off and like hurt are different ways like to communicate that, you know? So I could see that, that different cultures and even within different families there can be different emotions that are acceptable yes yeah preach that's so true yeah it was definitely real in my family like you couldn't really have emotions and then if you did but they were strong enough to make you cry then whoa Mm -hmm. that is not allowed you're not allowed to cry 
yeah, it's really hard. So then of course we all kind of adapt to, okay, crying bad. Um, but I can like yell and that's fine. <laughs> you know, like yeah. these different rules that we have. Yeah. Oh so, yeah, for sure. And that's, that's so much of the work that like all of us are doing. And I think our culture is changing in that people are more accepting of identifying that they're sad and it doesn't feel like, or even the Christian culture, some people think like sinful with some prosperity gospel stuff. Like it's bad to be like, you're just depressed because you don't love God enough or whatever. Oh my goodness. No, I'm depressed because like everybody in my family died. So, (laughs) you know, like, duh. Yeah, yeah. I know that I had a really hard time where um, for the first year of my marriage, I was so depressed. Like I'd been depressed, but I was trying to shove it aside and I couldn't shove it anymore. But I was really having this horrible guilt because I was like, I have everything I wanted, Mm -hmm. but now I'm so miserable. So then I would feel guilty. Yeah, I had the similar, like first, yeah, I had a similar, yeah, like I've only had, I think, two panic attacks in my whole life. And one of them was definitely like that first year, like before getting married and then that year following. So tough sucked I was really I remember being really lonely because your kind of social group changes when you get married it's it's tough so I think that's something that people don't talk about very much when a lot of people experience it just the difficulty yeah 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 and what's interesting is well people like to share lots of horror stories when you're getting married and maybe not specific stories but like just so you know the first year of marriage is the worst one just to scare you but like for me it was yeah, that was probably our worst year, but it was because I was depressed. It wasn't yeah. because we were fighting. Yes, yes. It's like they don't say why. They make it seem like, oh, it's like your spouse was the worst. But like, no, I'm just, it's just an environmental change. Like, it's yeah. just a big change. Like, Michael's fine. He's the same as he was however long, like when I met him, you know, yeah. and like, I'm the same. It's just, it's just hard. That's such a good point. It's like, no, no one says why. It wasn't anybody's, not our relationship's fault. It's just yeah. like adjusting like trying to do life you know yeah but you started to mention postmodern theory which this comes to how we reconnected i had shared an article from james Lindsay about yeah. critical race theory well mm-hmm. no it It was kind of that adjacent, but it was more specifically on like, is there institutional racism in America? And you messaged me with the most therapist message I'd ever (laughs) read in my life because it was so smart in that it got me talking without me feeling defensive because you were just like, hey, this was an interesting (laughs) article. Can you explain to me why you liked it? And I was like, okay, (laughs) yeah. No, I was like, I'm dead serious. I wasn't trying to like be manipulative. Like I was just genuinely curious because I read it Mm -hmm. because I like, you know, I respect you and what you think. So I was like, huh, what is this? I read it and it was just like, wow, this, like this person, what, what sparked me to message you was that the way he wrote and kind of, I read a bunch of his other stuff too on his website, the way he thinks and sees things is just like very different from the way I do in the way I've learned to think. And so I really was like genuinely like curious. So yeah, yeah. that was really interesting. I didn't feel manipulated. 
I felt like you wanted to hear it, but I also knew she just knew specifically how to word that. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah. And I, I mean, and really, I think what I'm interested most and what people don't talk about, and I think it's important to start doing in our culture with just some of the divisiveness is like, I'm really curious, like what about what someone thinks, like, how does that function? Like, how does that help you understand you? Like, how does that align with who you are and why that's important to you? Because then yes. it's not like this, uh, I disagree, like, blah, blah. It's like, oh, from this person's perspective, this is how it's integrated into how they see things. And like, this is how it's good for them. And this is how it's maybe less helpful. But it just, it makes things more contextual and less black and white, you know? Mm-hmm. And so thing in that conversation, I really appreciated is you, I feel like you recognize that. Because when you replied back to me, you gave me some like, this is how I see things. Like, this is why I understand it. And you even gave me some like, like, like even family background. Like, Mm -hmm. this is how I was raised. And like, this is how I understand these things. And this is why I like this. Yeah. And then it's so easy for me to be like, okay, like, that's what I was curious about. Like, what about this hit your phenomenology, you know, like your experience? Yeah. I don't know if I would still even 100% agree with everything I said, but not ter- not drastically changed, but maybe change a few things. Well, so anyway, maybe we should try to catch this up. I don't know if this will make it on the podcast because it's fun. Okay. So this guy, I don't know if he was saying like there is no institutional racism. I think he was pointing out the way at which critical race theorists try to interpret how there could be racism and look into things really deeply and in very specific ways. Okay. I think, because I think you can somewhat agree that like, obviously there's racism in America. Yeah. Whether or not it's government institutionalized still that I'm halfway up in the air on. Cause I, I just don't know. Yeah. But there's definitely still ripple effects. Yeah. Anyway, so I think he was just saying that this kind of postmodern way of thinking has just exacerbated everything so far out and made such mountains out of molehills. Um, I don't really know where to go now. (laughs) You talk now. Yeah, I think maybe I was more defensive when I read it, but he seemed to be really like I think one of his primary thesis was like was basically think like kind of criticizing this particular woman's theory on race that she uses in education and really saying that like thinking about racism systematically isn't helpful I think was one of his primary uh yeah theses there but yeah I don't know where to go either I had a thought and then I lost it it's hard to talk about yeah but um I mean I think I, the reason why I acknowledge systemic racism, even in my field or why I think it's important in the job I hope to get is because like as part of being in an institution as a psychologist, like when I am a psychologist, there are ways that the, the institution of psychology has worked against certain populations. And it's not just race you could say SES, you could even say women, you could say all kinds of people that there's certain things that the APA has said about uh, pathology or um, especially in assessments that has systematically hurt 
people in these different categories based on age, race, gender, whatever. So I, as being part of that system, need to be aware of the ways this, that system impacts how I see patients and do patient care and need to be on the lookout for, for example, um, our assessments are primarily norm normed on white people. It's like based on population, but you might have like three Pacific Islanders in a group of a thousand people that are normed with this assessment. So if I'm not understanding how me being part of this institution, using this assessment that my institution has approved could be um, interpreted differently because it wasn't normed on this group, then I could be potentially doing like harm to patients. So I know that feels kind of abstract, but it's actually pretty freaking concrete in that if I don't understand my role in a system, then I can fall into hurting people basically is, is kind of how I understand it. Sure. And yeah. being a therapist or psychologist or whatever, you mm. do have a lot of power in the situation. Oh. A lot, yeah. a lot of power. Yeah, yeah. So do you try to integrate racial parts into like when you're seeing a patient or, or is that something you try to leave behind? Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's an awesome question. And actually, yes. And we use a lot of different models. Like there's a addressing model and a, um, oh, what is it called? Another really cool model that you would like, but by dressing, does that literally mean like attire? No, 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 no. Like a <laughs> sorry, like a system of understanding people and their identity markers. So the addressing model is um, A D D R E S S I N G, and all of those letters stand for an identity marker. So age, disability acquired, disability um, developmental. Uh, I think religion, ethnicity, social economic status, spirituality indigenous heritage, uh, nation of origin and gender. So it's like a very simplistic model, but basically it's a way to look at how someone's identity markers are presenting and how they interact with each other and how that might inform what we do in therapy, how they understand themselves, worldview, like all that good stuff and, and power and privilege. So, yeah. So yes, we like, that's, that's brought into therapy a lot. And it's something that I think especially the field is pushing psychologists to always be thinking of diversity and culture in session and how that's playing out in the power dynamics of the room, um, cultural values, all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you have another? So I on? was listening the other day. I cannot tell you what I was listening to that brought this to mind, but they, this guy was talking about the idea of, colorblindness and how that is looked down upon yeah when you're looking at race and stuff and I'd always thought well I don't necessarily want people to just judge me by what color skin I have so I don't necessarily see how being colorblind or whatever is offensive I just but then I had a thought that what mm -hmm. if your skin color is integrated into your identity Maybe not the main thing, but it's integrated a little bit. Maybe even somewhat to the level of, are you a guy or a girl? Because I would want to be seen as a girl. 
and be therefore treated. I don't want to just be seen as just Jane or just just whatever, just uh, maybe human. <laughs> like actually being able to see the whole person as the whole person and not just ignore things that are there. Yeah, no, that's exactly, I think that's exactly the, the argument um, against the colorblindness thing, which I, I think is, is definitely where, where society is moving. And that's my, my bias would be that, yeah, colorblindness is ignoring important identity markers. But it's interesting as white people, we are not, especially where we grew up, where it's pretty homogenous, most everyone, a lot of people around us are white. Um, we are, were never, maybe, I won't say like speaking absolutes, but we really weren't asked to identify by our race, by others. Whereas I think people of color don't have that privilege. Where a person of color walks in a room, everyone else is immediately identifying them as their race. Whereas if you go like to an all white school, all white church or whatever, or even where you're the majority culture, you're not forced to interact with that. So it breeds like less empathy for race as an identity marker. But yeah, I think I think for a lot of people, the idea of colorblindness is minimizing how people are treated differently and their identity has to develop differently because of the color of their skin. Like people are treated differently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that this also, this kind of phenomenon of being noticed if you're not in the majority, it, it can't be America specific, right? I feel like if we went to Africa or even if I went to Mexico, like, I feel like it would be the same thing but flipped, right? Uh, yes and no. I think the, the thing is, historically, what's different about white skin is that historically it's been the skin of the colonizer. And so that holds a lot of power in different countries. Um, so like, for example, I went to Ghana, West Africa with my friend for like a month and where, where I was pointed out as being different. And there's people that I met who had never seen a white person before. And I had a lot of rooms where I was the only white person, even though, and there are even people because they were colonized by the British and were actually like a, um, a big slave port for um, slavery into America where people did comment on that. Like I had a teenager say um, she stole all of our gold because that was a big thing. The people that colonized that country um, who were first, I think um, Portuguese and then one other country and then um, Britain ended up colonizing in the end, but whatever. I represent those people. So even though you could say at, at face value, I was being like, quote, like discriminated against, or I had some of this derogatory comment based on my race, I never felt, I always had power because even though, because I rep, I was discriminated against because I represent these institutions of power. And I also have power because I represent these institutions of power, even coming from the United States, everybody around me would assume that I have more money than most of the people I was walking around and they would have assumed correct. So it's, it's different like discrimination versus when you broaden out and think of these broader systems that influence someone's power, 
but they're, they're also more nuanced to that. Like in India, they have a caste system. So it's more SES that would bring about discrimination and social disparities. So yeah, it's a complex thing. That makes sense. I, I don't know if I explained that well. It's kind of a brief. I think it yeah. makes sense and I can follow. So yeah. what, I don't know how to ask this, this question. It's going to sound really clumsy. So work with me. But like postmodern theory, critical theory, what are your kind of understandings and then thoughts and stuff like that? Yeah, I think the United States as a whole is moving to more of a postmodern philosophy culturally. Um, but a lot of places, I think where we grew up and uh, yeah, I think where we grew up is still holding true to like a lot of modernity's values. But in general, I'm not going to pretend to be a postmodern philosopher, but I, the things I've read, like I read some um, Foucault, and people like that. I, I kind of like it. I really do. I like the emphasis on diversity. I think it makes sense for our world. Um, as far as I think people get really hung up on the relativism stuff, like nothing is bad and nothing is good and whatever. But I think there's a lot more nuance to it than that. And it's really just trying to identify people's subjective realities and to understand that that exists. What else would I say about, oh, I like how postmodern philosophy deals with institutions, particularly with like Foucault's work and how institutions shape discourse and in individuals. So like how the church communicated to us XYZ impacts how we identify and move in the world. And so it just kind of, I like how it highlights that because I think that's true. Because um, my understanding of identity is that it's not just coming from the self, but the people around you in your community, the, what, what they say about you, what their narrative about you is, shapes who you are and how you see yourself. It's definitely true that like the things have influence on you and your identity. Your identity really is not just you. We are yeah. huge products of the time you live in and the place you're born in, the family we're born into. What, so... I have not read like these sources for the postmodern theory. I've mostly yeah. read critics of postmodern theory, which is not <laughs> a, a very <laughs> objective yeah. a way to go about it. But that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. I mean, that's how we all. Yeah. We, yeah. But, I haven't read a bunch of critics of postmodern theory. So yeah, maybe we, we should trade books, trade libraries for a know, couple right? months. Yeah. So, yeah. like, my understanding of the diversity question is that it's diversity in skin color and gender but not necessarily diversity in thought no I would say I would push back on that hard I think I think it's really encompassing of diversity of, of all sorts of, of any you could even say like um you have a diversity marker as like growing up in a culture where everybody in your house was a gymnast and they love gymnastics and that's like an identity marker of yours and a cultural difference. So I think culture is really fluid in how they define it. Yeah, but it would be more focused on, especially with institutions of power influencing, they would be more focused on race and gender because those are the things where institutions have probably impacted the most. Do you think institutions have to change or do you think that it's kind of like the culture and a, and a kind of a bottoms up change or, mm. or is it a little bit of a both? I really strongly believe in both. 
Um, I think, I think both influence one another. Yeah. And, and I definitely like, if we're talking about social change and social justice, I definitely am someone who appreciates uh, the, the bottom up and the top down coming all at once because there's institutions that create disparities but those in those institutions need to be changed, but we also need to address the disparities that are present. So yeah, I would definitely say both. What's your thought? Well, I think it's both too, but yeah. I think it's way more effective when it's bottom up. Like okay. um, effective on definitely an individual level, maybe it wouldn't appear so effective if you were t looking at a country of 330 million, yeah. but it sure seems to me that lives improve when lives improve, you know, and families mm -hmm. improve when the individuals in that family improve. And a lot of times, there are lots of things that are situational, like, you know, not having enough money can seriously, seriously impact your entire family structure. So it's so complicated. But yeah. the, the postmodern theory kind of scares me just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, because it is often paired with people who are very, have a lot of like Marxist and communist kind of leanings also. So then yeah. that kind of scares me because I'm like, yeah, can we not do Stalin? <laughs> Anything that Stalin was involved in. Yeah. So that's why it gives me kind of the creeps. But I also see that there are truths in there. Yeah. And lots yeah. of things hold pieces of truths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, it's how you, this is the other thing that I'm kind of passionate about, especially in talking about philosophy, theology. I, I think something I lean on is like, you'll know me by my fruits. So I really think, I think that philosophies and theologies can have their goods and bads and can be all over the place. And um, a big part of how to, how to make your own interpretation of what you want to adapt or what you feel is important needs to come from how that thing is influencing other people. How, how is that thing actually interacting in the world? Which I think is something that you're kind of getting at with this idea of bottom up. Um, you know, how is, how is this, okay, we think this thing, what does that look like? Is that hurting people or is that helping people? Is it doing both? You know? So mm -hmm. I, I think that's really important when we're looking at philosophies. And, and I also think that um, modernity had kind of an emphasis on the individual. And so post-modernity has more of an emphasis on the system, which is just a normal, like you said, like falling off the horse or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that kind of like philosophy and even theology really just tends to be back and forth of these, you know, very reactionary stuff. So yeah, I think that's cool that like you can identify that too. Because I think that's what we all... If we all do that, we're, we're better societies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, this is getting really off topic. Um, That's okay. Do you know who Johan, Johan Ari is? That's really familiar to me, but I couldn't like, I don't know. So yeah. he wrote a book a couple years ago called Disconnected. And I think it was about, I never read it, but I just heard him talking. Okay. Oh, and I think it was about social media and phones and kind of like how that's changed things and how you're like connected, but you're not really connected. So, but I was just listening to him. He was talking about, he has a new book coming out about addictions and kind of what causes and helps them. 
So how much into addiction kind of stuff are you? Well, it's cool because I just had a didactic yesterday talking about some addiction theories. So I don't like I'm not I'm not an expert. I haven't even taken my substance abuse class, but I know like a little bit. Um, and actually, the scholarship I want to apply for is um, coming out of the federal government for the opioid crisis. So I hope to one at some point be good at that. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So this guy was talking about. Um, so have you heard of the ACEs test and this, yeah, so it's where you take 10 question questionnaire or something like that. Like, did you ever see your mom hit your dad? Did you ever not have enough food? Did you, were, were one or both of your parents struggling with mental illness? And there's 10 of these kinds of things. And for mm-hmm. every one that you checked off, you were exponentially more likely to have a mental illness yourself or have a substance abuse problem. So that's mm-hmm. super interesting. Yeah. And especially the, the other thing I'd say about that is the four, if you have four ACEs, that's the big turning point for a lot of these negative outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Four, four is the big one we look for in, in therapy, but yeah. So he was talking, he was making a really good point about, this is kind of cir- trying to circle back around to yeah. uh, bottoms up or top down mm-hmm. change on things. He was saying, so a lot of people, and I agree with this, are addicted to things because their life is miserable. Whether it's miserable because of their addiction or it was miserable before, it doesn't really matter. But a lot of what is keeping them addicted is that their life is miserable. Mm-hmm. He said, for example, you can have somebody who, say like me, who had everything I said I wanted but was still kind of depressed. So maybe I turned to alcohol or whatever. So it could have been that the values that I was placing on, I'm not saying this is how it is, but the example of maybe the values of what I expected to make me happy were just junk values. So when you have junk values and your value system can come from your environment. So that's where you need the environment to change. You need a better value system, but then the bottoms up, is really trying to work to the best of your own ability to make better decisions and work on that kind of stuff. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, from more of this postmodern or um, even from acceptance and commitment therapy, like, we would never say that there's bad values. So it's interesting. I think you – Tell me, tell me more what you mean by bad values, like um, bad things to seek after that aren't helping you. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, that kind of idea. Maybe, um, you know, in America, there's definitely a lot of more money equals better. Yeah. And that just isn't true. So that kind of thing where you just have these value systems that obviously some money is better than no money. But once you get a threshold, then it's just more money, more problems. So kind of having a more realistic based value system of you need some money, but you really need good relationships and just building on things that do matter that are not necessarily subjective. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing I thought of, we had this really great speaker who talked a lot about ACEs actually in um, a lot of the childhood trauma. She works with families, um, Amy Stromberg. Um, One of the, things that she talked about or she she kind of understood and conceptualized addiction 
as I really like this um, compulsive comfort seeking. Yes. And yes, yes. And, um, and really having a tool when you have not been giving other tools to self-regulate, you use addiction to appease or to seek that comfort, which should come from other things, other better coping mechanisms. So yeah, I feel like that really fits with what you're saying too. We just had a really interesting case study yesterday about um, someone who was a binge eater. And, and we, like a lot of what we talk about is the function and treating the function, not the, just the behavior, right? So it was interesting, this person's story, um, he was sexually abused by, and this isn't like, this is a video that you can find online. So it's not me like talking about an actual patient, but he, um, he was sexually abused by his mother when he was younger. And one of the things that he remembers most and was most salient in his narrative is that when his mom would come home, what he wanted would, was a hug, but what she would do is just slide a sandwich under the door. Oh. And so for him, food became, became affection. Food became comfort from someone who should have been his primary attachment figure. And so that created this pattern where he, instead of seeking a healthy comfort with his mom, who wasn't giving it to him, he found that in food and became really um, obsessed with binge eating and particularly sandwiches. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of different things in trauma theory that all kind of integrate together in, in how we order our, our world. Um, yeah. So I thought that was just kind of an interesting case study. It was wild to hear this guy talk. He that said is he, interesting. Yeah. Like he went to an Italian restaurant. He would take the bread and put the lasagna in between the bread because it was like a sandwich. And that was like what love was. Yeah. That is so shocking. People are so interesting. So there's yeah. also a study done by a doctor who had been kind of assigned to try to help a bunch of people lose weight, like really, really obese people. Mm -hmm. And... One lady had, he kind of did it. How about we don't feed them? How about they do a fasting regimen? But we give them vitamins and we're watching them. So we'll make sure everything's cool. And this one lady in particular went from like 400 pounds to like 150 in, I don't, I don't know the timeline. But then one day she snapped and started gaining most of it back. And he said, so what? happened here and she's like oh I don't know what happened and he said so what happened on the day that you snapped and she said oh well you know I was at a bar and I got hit on uh -huh. mm -hmm. and then he said huh so how old were you when you first started gaining the weight and she said 11 he said so what happened then and she said well that's when my grandpa started raping me and you're like oh duh but then that inspired him to ask everybody and 60% of the people that he was working with had been sexually abused as kids. Yes. Yeah. Let, let's go. So like Preach. food addiction has yeah. some very serious implications. Yes. And are you sure you don't want to, oh, like you should come, come do this. <laughs> you got it. You know, like that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I think you should come be a therapist with me, but um <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where society kind of misses out on this contextual information, because I think a lot of people look at, say, someone in that situation, and they're like, ah, you just don't have enough. You're just impulsive and you need to just change your life. You just need to stop it. Like all this shame and blame. It's like, oh, man, there's a lot more to that story. Yeah. You know, 
a lot of a lot of our maladaptive behaviors are protective. Yeah, you know, we learn to do it because it, it helped. It had some function. It helped us somehow. You know, for that woman, it was it helped her feel like she was safe, like she wasn't gonna get raped. Um, nuance, love it. That's freaking awesome. Yeah. I love you know that. Thanks. Well, okay. Yeah. So to be honest, I'm starting to get tired and feel like I yeah. can't talk very well anymore. But <laughs> I am having a lot of fun, so I don't really want to quit. But I think for the sake of podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. Yes. It was really fun. It's it's been a I think it's been a realized dream to be on a podcast. Ooh. I love podcasts. This is super cool. Cool. And you're awesome. And yeah, I really appreciate this conversation. So thank Thanks. you. Yeah. So I think I misled you. I didn't mean wrap up this second, but I'm glad you said oh, okay. those things. <laughs> I do have four questions that I just ask everybody on the way out. So okay, yeah, that's great. So question number one, the office or parks and rec? Oh, nah. Okay, Parks and Rec because I watched it before I watched The Office and my husband would watch Office episodes without me. So I didn't get the full experience. That's horrible. Doing That's homework. called Netflix cheating. It's a real I know. thing. I know. I It wasn't cool. But I also blame graduate school for that. So Parks and Rec, Amy Nope all the way. Or <laughs> Leslie Nope, Amy Poehler. You know what I mean. <laughs> yes, I love That's that. Funny. That's such a good question. Uh, number two, in Genesis 1 through 11, pre-Abraham stuff, is this legend or history? Oh, damn. You asked the good ones. Can I say both? That's probably a cop-out. Okay, I'm going to say both. <laughs> also, I have a, I went to the um, whatever county fair and met little Sebastian t-shirt, and I really needed to share that with you before we ended. You have a little Sebastian t-shirt? I, I freaking do. I, I would find it, but... I have a mouse rat t-shirt, so we're even. That's so <laughs> awesome. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> What's my next one? Oh, do you think that there are aliens? I want there to be aliens. Can I want there to be aliens? Yeah. That's my thing. I'm, I'm going to say I, I, I really... I don't know if I think there are, but I like to imagine there are. So... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Do you also like to imagine parallel universes? Yes. That would be something I would imagine. Yes. Yes. I feel like we are the same person. <laughs> I definitely think we have shared interests. No, no doubt. Um, okay. And my final one here is who or what inspires you to be your best self? Yeah, I would say there's a lot of biblical characters that inspire me to be my best self. And I would also say that my cohort members and professors inspire me to be my best self. I think those are some of the things that have pushed me and kept me carrying on and made me think about life and my purpose and why I'm here. So appreciate all of that. So that was my final question. So now you can say more nice things about how much <laughs> you just love the podcast and that kind of stuff. Abigail is the most wonderful person. Everyone should listen to her podcast. All of the famous people should be asked questions by her because it would be a blessing to them. And those are my final thoughts. <laughs> Graced by your presence, Abigail. Yeah, Graced by your Perfect. Presence. What a perfect wrap up. <laughs> uh, but genuinely, thank you. Thanks, you too. Bye.